When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest GGM FTW edition. It's Wednesday, April 23rd, 2014. On today's show, Under the Skin is the new slim release indie movie starring Scarlett Johansson as a beautiful man-trapping alien. And then one of the major literary figures of the 20th century has died. We will discuss the legacy of Gabriel Garcia Marquez with the journalist and critic Paul Berman. And finally, shut the fuck up. Gawker is trying to grow up by eliminating internet slang. Amazeballs. Joining me today is Slate's deputy editor, Julia Turner, who will no doubt tell me what the slangy policy is for Slate.com. Hi, Julia. Hi, Steve. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm I, good. How I, are you? Did I break your stride by inquiring about your well-being? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit, but also in this kind of cold, alien-like way that makes me feel like getting into your van. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, and of course, we're joined by uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Steve, before we start the show, I have an announcement. Can I make an announcement? Uh, Let me think about it. Yes. Yay. All right. Steve, we are still up. We and the other Slate podcasts are up for a Webby, the People's Voice Webby for Best Podcasts. We would like to win this Webby. We are up against some massive media organizations, the BBC, NPR, huge powerhouses. uh, And we like to think of ourselves as a, a scrappy upstart who's devoted listeners will propel us to the top. So please propel us to the top. Go vote for us. There is a handy URL we've created that will direct you right to the voting page. It's slate.com slash webby. That's W-E-B-B-Y. Also, one other addendum. We are doing our live show in Montreal on Sunday, May 4th. That show is unfortunately sold out, but we're also having a cocktail hour the day before at Billy Coon, which is, as we all know, Steve's favorite bar in Montreal. Uh, we're going to have a special area there. Tickets will enable you to have a free drink. Come chat with us, chat with other Montrealers, fans of the podcast. You can find tickets to that event at slate.com slash live, as in live events. All right, Steve, now we can commence. Thanks, Julia. Okay, let's dig in. Under the Skin is a British-American indie film co-written and directed by Jonathan Glazer, the man behind the terrific movie Sexy Beast. Uh, This one stars Scarlett Johansson as a space alien cruising the streets of Glasgow, preying upon young, unattached men. One gimmick of the film is that much of its footage apparently was shot candidly. That is, uh, Johansson, all uh, but unrecognizable, but very beautiful in a black wig, actually did trawl Glasgow streets in a white van asking young men for directions, uh, sometimes picking up members of the citizenry, non-actors who through at least part of their performance were being filmed unawares. The result is one of the most quizzically alluring films in recent memory. All right, well, Dan, I'm very curious to know what you thought of this movie, in part because... I'm still puzzling out my own reaction to it. 
And frankly, reading reviews online and sort of sifting through the critical appraisal of the movie doesn't really help. There's a range of reactions to it. Some people regard it as evidence that, that this man, Glazer, is an heir to Stanley Kubrick. Other people see it as a giant nothing burger. I'm really curious to know what you thought of this movie. Yeah, you know, it's one of those experiential movies that's more about the experience of sitting in the theater watching it than anything you could kind of analyze. I didn't review Under the Skin because I happened to be on vacation the week it opened. And then I just started to realize I have to see this movie because it's one of those movies that after people have seen it, they want to talk about it. They can't stop thinking about it. Whether they liked it or not, it's some kind of powerful experience that they want to recount. And there was a great slate thread this week of, you know, different people discussing their reactions to it from David Plotz, our editor, who walked out after 25 minutes because he thought it was the worst movie ever made, you know, to other people who were championing its brilliance, and then plenty of other head-scratchers who were just saying, I don't know what that was about, but I'm glad I saw it, which is, I think I would say, generally my reaction. Still kind of puzzling it together, but the first hour, I would say, is incredibly beautiful and and unsettling. I'm not sure that the end quite lives up to that promise. What about you guys? Mm. I liked the end even better than the beginning, actually. The movie becomes stunningly beautiful. Basically, I was viewing the movie through the lens of good for the Scots, bad for the Scots. And for the first half of the movie, I was like, I'm never going to Scotland. (laughs) Only horrible things happen there. And then the second half of the movie, it looked so beautiful. I was like, ah, shoot, I guess I better go to Scotland anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't get in anybody's van. (laughs) Um, Are you kidding? I was thinking the whole time, what city do I have to go to to get picked up off the street by Scarlett Johansson? (laughs) I I will say that I, 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 I'm going to split the baby in half. I thought it was a riveting nothing burger. I don't recommend very, money, um, very many movies to my uh, wife. I think this is a movie she ought to go see. So similarly to our listenership, I, it's a movie you shouldn't miss. It's, you know, I, I, but then why is it a nothing burger? I'll throw it right back at you, Dana. What's the something in the something burger? <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Here's my stab at a something. And Steve, you totally fell into the trap of the male critic writing about this movie. A lot of people got blown up on the landmines of, of that field. Uh, reviewing this film, I think I think you're just you just put your foot right with that, but but barely. <laughs> I mean, the the male critic writing slash talking about Scarlett Johansson, it's a perilous endeavor, um, and Anthony Lane got dinged rightly, I think, for his sort of absurdly lusty slash unusually vapid for Anthony Lane take on Scarlett Johansson in the New Yorker peg to this film coming out. But I think I would recommend that people see it because it's one of the most unusual experiences I've had at the movies for a long time and therefore very exciting to see something that is genuinely a fresh and surprising experience at the cinema is so exciting. I remember us talking about Pacific Rim last summer and being like, wow, finally, it's an action movie that's got an original idea behind it instead of being based on 10 franchises of 10 other things. That is not a movie that shows us new things you can do with the art of film. This is a movie that to me takes you to a totally different place and a totally different world and unsettles you deeply and made me excited about going to the movies. But I think the movie also has some ideas in its head about women and men and predators and sex and lust that I'm still puzzling through. But I think that's the something in the something burger. And I think that's actually part of what's made the male critics lusting after Scarlett Johansson part of the story, right? It's a Mm -hmm. question about who's got the power and, and who doesn't in those situations. You know, first of all, I totally agree with everything you just said. And and secondly, let me very carefully tiptoe my way out of the field of landmines by saying that obviously this is a movie about male predation being turned back upon itself and the male gaze and lust. I completely agree with all that. Secondly, I should say that her performance is extraordinary. I think she's quite good. It's very hard, I think, especially if you're an actress 
about whom people have so many associations to present as blank a screen as she does in the film. That's a tough acting assignment. She says very little. When she speaks in a British accent, she does it quite credibly. And, um, you know, she's sinister. You don't associate her to the extent that she does very little. That's a blank screen upon which you're likely to project all of your preconceptions about her, none of which is that she's intrinsically a sinister person. And yet that blankness makes you think of her as utterly sinister, as does the tone and, and, and structure of the whole movie. So in that sense, I, com- I completely agree with you. I distrust my own reaction when I start listing the names of extremely fancy boutique directors that the work of film I'm watching reminds me of. I mean, when you st- sit there and you're thinking Tarkovsky, Kubrick, whatever, isn't that a bit of a red flag, Dana? Isn't there something slightly precious and self-conscious about this movie? I mean, it is a movie that sets its aesthetic ambitions very high, maybe maybe higher than its intellectual ambitions, which is not to say that it's, it's a dumb movie in any way, but I don't think that maybe it's, it's grappling with ideas, especially science fiction ideas, is quite as ambitious as Tarkovsky's or, or Kubrick's. Another movie, though, that it's compared to a lot, that in, in form it resembles very closely, is Nicholas Rogue's The Man Who Fell to Earth, which stars David Bowie mm-hmm. as this alien on Earth, of course, perfect casting for a young David Bowie in 1976, who you know, wanders through this modern universe sort of trying to understand with a similar blankness to the the Johansson character in this movie. That's a very different film in that it's more concerned with social satire and it's sort of more about Earth in a way than it is about the man who fell to Earth. I think something I admired about this movie is its dedication to the (laughs) post-human. I mean, it's a very hard movie Mm -hmm. to watch in many scenes because... It's it's setting up a protagonist who is not human and who has, and until the end when she starts to maybe move toward trying to have some human feelings and essentially failing, she's sort of beyond morality, beyond good and evil. And there's some things that happen around her without wanting to give away too much that involve, you know, not only the demolishing of all these guys she picks up in the van in a peculiarly horrible way, but also child endangerment and, you know, people swimming out into open surf and just there's a lot of scary um, stuff going on around her that she doesn't react to morally in any way. And so that was some strange stuff for it to explore. It's cold. It's a very cold movie. Yeah, although I think actually the turn in her character in the second half of the movie is like a slow release response to some of the horrible things she hasn't reacted to in the beginning. I mean, I think part of why the movie is polarizing is that there are some things in the first 30 minutes of it that are so horrifying to watch that I understand why our editor, David Plotz, walked out and then said it was the worst movie he'd ever seen, even though he hadn't actually seen it. But I think the movie does use that horrifying incident as a turning point. It, I mean, the, the whole movie is really beautiful. I think it's sort of very, it's a very coherent, complete piece of work. I don't know exa- exactly know what should be in there that isn't there. I guess I just thought that some of the ideas in the first half, and again, without giving too much away, but some of the ideas about the purpose of her mission on Earth and why she's luring these men to their deaths. I wanted it to emerge into a little bit more of a framework. I mean, I didn't want some, you know, some scientist in front of a white screen to explain the the whole thing to me. But I guess I wanted to know a little bit more about her creation, uh, who that guy was who's sort of like the Terminator on a motorcycle, who follows her around, who seems to be sort of policing her activities and making sure that she harvests enough men. What was going on with all of that stuff? There were some moments where it was elusive to the point of inexplicability, and it, it, the end did get a little frustrating for me. I guess I liked that about the movie because I find that the least interesting thing about science fiction is always... The guy in front of a whiteboard. The ostensible ideas behind it or what the alien wants or the stupid universe and its weird rules. I mean, to me, the thing that's delightful about it is that it begets unexpected emotional reactions and strangely beautiful things you've never seen before and creates a sense of wonder and mystery. And I liked that this movie 
enjoyed those upsides of science fiction without feeling tethered to the downsides. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. it's also just that the effects, some of the effects in the first half, not spectacular effects, very simple things, but essentially what happens to the guys after she lures them away. It was just such a wildly imaginative universe. And there I did feel like I was in Kubrick land or some place where, you know, different physical laws apply and a different kind of cinematic space has been created. And that stuff was really cool. So maybe I just wanted some of that to come back in the second half, which is much more kind of earthbound. She leaves Glasgow and goes up to the woods of northern Scotland and is kind of tromping around in the woods. And it's it's beautiful. There's a lot of beautiful stuff that's happening, but it sort of leaves the sci-fi behind. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I, I stand completely convinced. I mean, I do think it was kind of an amazing movie and not, it was a, a something burger after all. It's Under the Skin. It stars Scarlett Johansson. It was uh, co-written and directed by Jonathan Glazer, he of Sexy Beast. Uh, this one you really should check out because it's really not finding a wide audience, but deserves a wider one, certainly, than it's getting. So go see it and tell us what you thought of it at uh, facebook.com slash culturefest. Go see it unless you really, really, really can't stand child endangerment, and then in which case just skip yeah, it. Yeah, actually, I would, I would say if, you, if you're not into something that's basically an extremely intense and frightening and unsettling movie that will haunt you for days afterwards, you shouldn't <laughs> see it. But, you know, there are people that like that kind of thing. <laughs> Thanks for the fat, glowing neon asterisk. No, I say that um, as someone who does love unsettling movies that haunt you for days after, but it is one for sure. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, the whole movie itself operates like Scarlett Johansson in the van, right? To all of the lunks who think, a Scarlett Johansson movie, awesome. I'm going to see some hot, <laughs> naked Scarlett Johansson. Then they just buy the ticket, walk into the theater, sit down with their popcorn, and then, oh, shit. <laughs> well, but then the let me add another to coda them. to that, which is that if you are interested in seeing a hot, naked Scarlett Johansson, you're wishes will be amply fulfilled because there's plenty of lingering nude shots. I mean, I'm not saying they're voyeuristic even, but, you know, who isn't interested in seeing a little naked scar Joe? And she <laughs> really you're, does bear it all. You're failing the Anthony Lane test, Dana. <laughs> all right, fine. I think, I think she's passing it with flying colors. <laughs> <sighs> all right, everybody get in the van and go see Under the Skin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so off the hook. I love it. <laughs> All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Dana, you're going to take it from here, yeah? Yes. The Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Audible.com, which, as our listeners know, is the leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment on the web. They have over 150,000 titles to choose from. And what we've been doing on the show lately is creating the Culture Gab Fest bucket list, whereby we mandate you to listen to certain Audible titles that you need in order to become a cultured human being. And Julia has one for this week. What's your recommendation, Julia? My recommendation for this week is Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. If you haven't ever read or listened to Virginia Woolf, you should stop whatever you're doing right now and go do it. She's the single best depictor of what goes on inside a human head of anyone I've ever read. I mean, just the sheer ability she has to pin down on the page the texture of consciousness and what it feels like to exist in the world is totally remarkable. I've never read anything like it. And Mrs. Dalloway, I think, is my favorite of her books because... I love its protagonist, Clarissa Dalloway, who's a kind of a nothing burger of a hostess, except she's got so much going on inside. There are several versions of Mrs. Dalloway unabridged available on Audible. One is read by Annette Benning, which sounds completely tantalizing. Another is read by Anne Flosnick, perhaps, no doubt, a titan of the audiobook reading world, but you got to feel bad for an Anne Flosnick, who's going up against an Annette Benning. And we've got we've got an Anne-ish duo in our producing booth right now with Anne Hepperman and Anna Schechtman. But I feel like their names, there's no obvious winner there. They could really vie head to head. But Annette Benning, Flosnick, a little trickier. Anyway, it goes in the Pantheon. It goes on the bucket list. Mrs. Dalloway, check it out. 
So that, along with 150,000 other titles, can be found on audible.com, and they have a special deal there for Culture Fest listeners. You get a 30-day free trial and one free book if you sign up at our page, which is audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. So again, for a 30-day trial, one free book, Mrs. Dalloway or another, go to audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. Thanks, Dana. All right, moving on. Gabriel Garcia Marquez was, of course, the Colombian novelist, journalist, playwright, etc., etc. Marquez won the Nobel Prize in 1982. It's fair to say he's best remembered for the astonishing tour de force novel, 100 Years of Solitude. There is a lordly grandeur in Gabriel Garcia Marquez's writing, and the grandeur animates every one of his books because, from beginning to end, he was gripped by an impossibly grand conundrum, which is the contradiction between lofty literature and lowly life. So wrote our guest Paul Berman in The New Republic on the occasion of Marquez's death at the age of 87. Mr. Berman is the author of A Tale of Two Utopias and Terror and Liberalism, among many other books. Paul, welcome to the show. It is fantastic to finally have you on. I'm delighted to be here. Let's begin with that phrase, lordly grandeur. What did you mean by that? Oh, there's a majesty in Garcia Marquez. From the first sentence on of each of his books, you're immediately convinced that you've launched yourself on some mighty Amazon or grand ocean of, of ideas and feelings. And he is able to keep that up from start to finish. Whatever his theme may be, you have no doubt that it is majestic. And so it's kind of thrilling. You, be, you begin his books, you know, setting out to sea. It's wonderful. In the essay, you talk about magical realism, which we don't really need to focus on that term, but you said something about it that I had never thought, and um, I wanted to share with our listeners, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the argument seems to be that he had received a first-class literary education in one of the most unlikely places to find it in what you call the banana zone, or what's been called the banana zone, right upon the edge of the Caribbean in Colombia, and only to discover uh, that it's not a coping mechanism, that that literary education is not a coping mechanism for real life. And so in order to cope, you invent this new form, a kind of oxymoron called magical realism. Oh, it's something like that. He grew up in the banana zone in in a very poor area. He managed to go to a good college in Bogota, where he was taught, as everyone was in that sort of school, the great classics of the Spanish Golden Age, which meant that he spent his childhood living in the 16th or 17th century among gods and goddesses and, and the ancient myths of, of Rome, all expounded in perfectly syllabled metric verse. And this is a wonderful education. But then, when you're launched into real life, it comes as kind of a shock. My view on magical realism is, is that I think most people misunderstand it. They think of it as folk superstitions adopted as a, as a narrative device. But I think it's the Spanish high baroque from the 16th and 17th century. And it's people like Garcia Marquez and others who are full of Gongora and Lope de Vega and all those who are themselves full of Ovid and Virgil and the, the Latin poets. And they, they take those concepts and just try to fit it into the world in which they live. And of course, it doesn't fit into the world in which they live. And that's their theme. Well, something else that you say, talking about both Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Ruben Darío, the Nicaraguan poet, is that they fold in all this Spanish Golden Age kind of Baroque imagery, but they also adapt it into a political context of Latin America. So, for example, in The Autumn of the Patriarch, which you cite as your favorite Garcia Marquez book, and it was his favorite of his own novels, I believe, he uses this image of a dictator who, who can't die. 
right? Right. And which, of course, is sort of, it's both a magical image and a perfect metaphor for these dictators that do, in fact, stay in office until their, their deaths. And that this dictator has other magical properties that correspond to real properties and real dictators, for example, that he's everywhere at once. He's yes. someone who can be seen in one place and be seen in another place at the same time. Right. Well, I look at the autumn of the patriarch as a perfect meditation on Ruben de Rio and all these things we're talking about. If you go back to look at the book, you see that he, he cites Ruben de Rio in the very first pages, and then Ruben de Rio sails into town, you know, 200 pages later, and then, and, then, and then he shows up yet again. And Garcia Marquez is not the kind of writer who likes to invoke other writers. You don't see a long list of names of authors in, in his books, but Ruben de Rio is, is there. And it's for exactly the reason that we, that we're talking about. De Rio himself grew up with all this ancient poetry. He mastered it. He knew how to write it. Then he figured out how to modernize it by stealing some ideas from the French. And he figured out finally how to talk about a world which is both the real world of ordinary reality and is also the world of ancient myth or fantastic things at the same time. And the way to do this in uh, Ruben de Rio's case is, is to declare yourself insane. So he wrote poetry as if he were insane. It's very moving. And then he's nostalgic for his childhood and all this. And all this reappears in, in Garcia Marquez. In the autumn of the patriarch, yes, you've got this, this, this mad dictator. But, but above all, the real dictatorship in that book are the sentences, the sentences and the paragraphs. The whole book is four paragraphs long. They, they're lunatic sentences in which they start off being spoken by, by one person, but by midway through, the sentence is being spoken by another person. By the end, it's, it's a crowd speaking the, the, the sentence, so you, you don't even know who's speaking. And you realize, though, after a while, that you are in the grip of a truly despotic dictatorship, which is the despotic dictatorship of language. He's got you throttled in, <laughs> in this. And, of course, by doing this, Garcia Marquez has figured out exactly what is the real source of Latin American dictatorship. It's language. If you can't give a five-hour oration on the onion crop, you can't be a dictator. <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing that's interesting trying to reckon with Marquez's literary reputation on the occasion of his death for me is I, I encountered him as a teen. You know, I think a lot of young people read his books maybe for a class, maybe when they're young, and don't encounter him again critically. And I think, Dana, you were mentioning that when you were in grad school, you felt that the literary reputation of magical realism had kind of suffered. You never studied him despite... Um, well, I also wasn't studying Spanish language literature, but there, there's, there, I was studying Portuguese more than Spanish. But there are definitely, you know, novelists like Jorge Amado in, in Brazil that are classi classified as magical realists. And yeah, at the particular moment I was in grad school, it was sort of out of fashion and something that was being read in a popular context, but not an academic one. Right. And I think it can be hard for like an American teen who doesn't yet, hasn't yet learned much about the political realities of South America to grok what these books might have meant when they emerged in Colombia. I mean, I sort of think there's so many different kinds of readers of Marquez that can be a little bit hard to figure out all of the different things that the books are doing. I think it's not so much the political knowledge that's needed as, as some sort of appreciation of the classics. If you've got Virgil in mind and Ovid and, and all those people and you turn to these writers, well, of course, they make instant sense. You know, they're, they're, and by the way, Virgil is great. I mean, I mean, magical realism, he's got it down. And, and, and he's the man. And that's what it's about. Graduate schools, I don't know, being an American teenager, that's good. <laughs> 
Paul, you, you mentioned Virgil, and of course, defining fact of Virgil is that he's writing from the center of an empire. Certainly one of the defining things about Marquez is that he's writing from the periphery of one. Talk maybe a little bit about the political content of his writing. Well, there's a, there's a Garcia Marquez who's really political, who takes political positions, who has alliances, things he's against. And then there's Garcia Marquez, the novelist, who seems to me a little different. Garcia Marquez, the novelist, seems to me to be writing from the periphery of an empire, but it's not the empire one thinks of. It's the old Spanish empire. And he's way out in the boondocks of an empire whose capital is Madrid. And, and he's reflecting on the grand culture of, of the Spain of hundreds of years ago. And he makes this, he makes this very obvious. Uh, right at the beginning of um, 100 Years of Solitude, you know, they discover a Spanish galleon in the jungle. And, there, you know, there's, there's a conquistador suit of armor that's, that's, that's discovered with a magnet and things like that. And at the beginning of um, Autumn of the, of the Patriarch, uh, you see Columbus's ships sailing into into the, into the harbor. So we're, you know, if, with Garcia Marquez, he's, he's back there in the days of the Spanish conquest and, and it's Spain arriving. It's the Spanish empire. So that's the empire of, on which he is on the margin and he's trying, and that's the problem that he is trying to deal with. Also, Ruben Daria was trying to deal with. What do you do when you've grown up in this fantastically rich culture, which is the culture of imperial Spain, the literary culture of imperial Spain, and yet you find yourself living in some, you know, uh, difficult place in, in northern Nicaragua or in, in the banana zone of Colombia hundreds of years later. You have this, this magnificent culture and you're living in a, in a slightly different world altogether and you're trying to square the two. That's the, the problem these guys are wrestling with, which on one hand they have literature, which means the literature of, of old Spain. And on the other hand, they have life, which is, which is a little difficult. And it's not so much about uh, U.S. imperialism, though obviously in, in both of those countries, uh, uh, de Rio's Nicaragua and Garcia Marquez's Colombia, you know, they're, they're, they're a history of dreadful uh, U.S. interventions and miserable uh, American companies like the uh, horrible United Fruit Company and things like that. that. Those are serious problems, but those are problems in the zone of real life. They're not problems in the zone of the literary imagination. And Garcia Marquez is trying to square the one with, with the other. That's his thing. Mm. Well, Paul Berman is senior editor of The New Republic. He's the author of the marvelous nonfiction book, Tale of Two Utopias. His article in The New Republic is Garcia Marquez liberated the Spanish language from the tyranny of the past. Paul Berman, thank you so much for coming on the program. It was a total delight. Uh, thank you. It's a thrill. Hey, Steve, before we start our third segment, I want to make another announcement. I'm going to hijack the show for a minute. This week, Slate has launched Slate Plus, which is a membership program that offers our most loyal listeners and readers a way to connect with Slate personalities and to support the journalism that we do. We have a whole bunch of goodies that we're offering, including a bunch that are specifically directed at podcast listeners. So the first big one is that Slate Plus subscribers will be able to listen to ad-free podcasts, which means hearing less of my mellifluous voice talking about our, whatever our sponsor of the week is and more of just getting right on to the next segment. We're also going to be offering bonus segments every week. So if you 
are a Slate Plus subscriber, you'll get to hear a little bit of an extra round from me, Dana, and Steve, and from some of the other podcasters as well. There's also another suite of services on site, including you can read articles without pagination. You have a better commenting system. There's a Slate Plus homepage that will have behind-the-scenes content about how we put Slate together. And you can get all of this for either $5 a month or $50 a year. And if you sign up for that annual membership, you also get a cool mug designed by Jonathan Adler. So it's a whole host of goodies, and you should check out the offering at slate.com slash plus. You'll also find a video there from me, uh, Steve, and Dana welcoming you all to the service. Definitely check it out. It's a great way to have a better podcast experience and to support everything we do at Slate. All right, let us talk about our next topic. Thanks, Julia. All right, moving on. We want to sound like regular adult human beings, not BuzzFeed writers or Reddit commenters. So wrote the new Gawker editor, Max Reed, in a memo to his writers, no more epic pawn derp or amazeballs, and when in doubt about style, he said, improbably, if you ask me, he said, err on the side of the New York Times. Julia, you're the editor here, so of course I start with you. Um, I'm curious, first of all, what's Slate's policy on slanginess? And then secondly, what do you make of this? This is an incredible moment that Gawker uh, wants to grow up. I think it's less incredible than you think it is, and I'll explain why in a moment. But first, let me explain Slate's policies. Slate does not really have a list of words that are verboten. I think there's a general sense that we try to hire excellent writers and we try to produce sparkling sentences and that our most devoted fans like Slate because they know they're likely to encounter sparkling sentences on Slate. I'm sure there have been some amazeballs on Slate. I hope there haven't been too many derps, which I think is deeply stupid, but... If someone can find a smart way to wield a derp, I'm not going to stand in his way. I will say, however, that one piece of Slate Plus content that people have been reading this week is a debate between David Plotz, our editor, and Laura Helmuth and Dan Coyce, two senior editors here, about Slate's profanity policy, which is a little bit more stringent. David really, really, really does not like us to swear unless it is absolutely necessary. And they had a pretty lively debate about that. But I think this sign question is different. And the reason I'm not particularly surprised by it is that Magazine editors and website editors from Time Immemorial have often banned the words that play most into the negative stereotypes about their publication. This is like a time-honored practice. So Vanity Fair has banned the word boat. Uh, (laughs) Maxim has banned the word babe. Town and Country has banned the word socialite. Typically, the magazines ban the words that you are most likely to assume their pages are studied with because they're trying to avoid becoming cliches of themselves. Wow, it's like how hipsters never think they're hipsters, right? Exactly. The thing you are is the thing you most hate. Right, exactly. So there's a fundamental core of self-loathing at the heart of these editorial directives, and yet I'm sure they make sense to help uh, publications avoid becoming cliches of themselves. And so... When editor Max Reed issues this directive, it seems totally legitimate to me. They're a magazine that has long worked the edge between respectable journalism and the frontiers of of the development of Internet style. I mean, Gawker invented in a lot of ways parts of what the Internet is and slang like this. But the fact that they are currently at a phase where they're investing in long form and investigative and interesting journalism and they don't want to just post things on the Internet and then say this, meaning you should watch this thing I just posted or... I'm impressed that this thing exists or whatever it is that this, the very vague internet-y pronoun is supposed to mean. It seems fine. It seems totally fine. So why are you shocked? Why do you think this is so improbable, Steve? 
I mean, I'm so I've been left. So, I mean, you know, so far behind the internet and all its various publications have iterated out, you know, 50 times. We're at 50.0 beyond the last time I paid attention. And it just seems to me that Gawker is the paradigmatic case of an immature internet publication employing very young wage slaves in search of uh, totally delusive glory and forcing them to write in the most childish and uh, reductive ways about celebrity culture. That Gawker has suddenly turned into the gray lady to me is just, it's, I mean, it's a measure of nothing other than how completely out of it I am. Uh, I make no case otherwise, but um, it's just interesting to me, Dana, that, okay, the cliche, you know, maybe business insider, what's, they're not allowed to use the word disruptor or disruptive probably, but I'm allowed to use it because I don't give a shit about such things. So um, what's interesting to me about this is that the disruptor turns into the disrupted at such an incredibly fast pace in the age of the internet, by which I mean Gawker shows up as the enfant terrible and challenges everyone's sense of decorum only to lose the clickbait race with Reddit and BuzzFeed, and therefore it has to suddenly gussy itself up in a periwig and a monocle. Kind of crazy. First of all, Gawker's been around for more than a decade. I mean, that's not exactly it's like, not like lightning fast. It's not like they speed. debuted two months ago. Second of all, I will pay you 20 bucks if Business Insider has banned the word disrupt. I do not believe that for one minute. I don't believe it either. But but it's only been I mean, I know that within the lifespan of our own show, we've talked about Gawker being a kind of, you know, an idiot's delight that was being called out for not growing up. I know that it's been in the last two or three years. It's not it's not like eight years ago, seven years ago, they started the slow, long, painful transition to long form journalism, you know, and have been trying to lure Janet Malcolm over from The New Yorker. I mean, this is Right? Am I wrong about that? But I mean, didn't we also interview Adrian Chen when he wrote quite a long reported piece on that, that Reddit troll for Gawker? I mean, I think Gawker has been moving into that realm for some time now, yeah. which makes their name kind of comically apposite to what they're doing. But Yeah, I actually think you could argue that Gawker's move towards serious journalism started six or seven years ago, Steve. But I, I don't think that's the most interesting <laughs> fight to have here. I mean, to me, I think the question of whether these Internet slang terms are going to become common parlance is part of what people are responding to here. Like the idea that we're all going to say balls forever and ever. Amen. I don't know. I think probably we will because I think that's how language works. And I'm not too chagrined about it, even if I am more chagrined about the this is and derps of the internet. You know, just FYI, Julia, Dave Weigel's Twitter feed is a solid stream of derps. He uses the word derp about 40 times <laughs> I know, a day. But that's I know. Twitter. I know. I know. Weigel's a, a big uh, derp trader. You know, the uh, the conservative, politically conservative, but apparently not linguistically conservative linguist John McWhorter wrote a nice response to this Gawker memo in The New Republic in which he went through some slang terms that we toss around today like it was nothing, including OK, and, you know, observes how bizarre it would be to a denizen of the 1830s that we were taking this campaign slogan from Martin Van Buren, is that what it was, and turning it into a new synonym for yes. So, of course, there's no way to predict the future of language or what amazeballs will sound like in, you know, 150 years. (laughs) But I also sympathize with the editorial bent of someone who would say, let's not have cliches in our journalism. You know, it's not just that there are these specific words. It's how those words have played into language usage over the past few years and just how cliched and worn out they've become, like the this thing, right? Sort of presenting something with this melodramatic this in front of it. There's just, there's a lot of sort of childish melodrama out there on on social media in the way 
that information is framed. And so I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with someone at a publication deciding to roll that back. That said, as soon as you produce an actual list of prescribed words, you know, you're moving towards something that can easily be poked fun at as a kind of censorship and, you know, as you said, Steve, a gray lady in a periwig. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a key distinction. I doubt that Max Reed would argue that FTW, standing for, for the win, should be extirpated from the language somehow. But I, to say that that's not, you know, putting something online and then add, appending FTW does not constitute an acceptable Gawker post. That's a totally reasonable position for an editor to have. I will also say about FTW, FTW bedeviled me for several years because before it meant for the win universally, there's like a substrain of FTW that stood for fuck the world. And I had a friend who wanted to get a tattoo once of FTW, meaning fuck the world, which is like maybe an argument for not getting a tattoo, especially of words, because their meanings can evolve. But for a long time, I started reading it and people would use it in all these contexts where fuck the world didn't make any sense to me. I'm realizing I'm, I'm violating Slate's profanity policy right now as I relate this tale. Um, so it is, you know, these terms as they gain wider adoption can be obfuscatory because not everybody understands what they mean or which social media conventions they're referring to. So I also think in some ways it's an argument toward accessibility or a move toward accessibility on Max Reed's part to suggest that the whole magazine shouldn't be conducted in internet ease for super internet diehards. Right, for in kind of, you know, youth internet code. I mean, I do think a lot about the future of language and how technology will how, how, how our current terms for technology will survive in language, and this is only a vaguely related topic, but for example, the verb Google, right, for looking for information on something has become so universal, whether or not you're using the search engine Google, which may not exist in 100 years, but it's hard to imagine that some evolved form of the word Google will not continue to mean research, you know, in hundreds of years from now. I love imagining what those future forms of words will be. Well, okay, so isn't the use of slang kind of like naming a child, you're trying to time the curve a little bit and you want to be bloody sure you're just ahead of it and not on the wrong side of it. So when we named our first daughter Stella, we were gripped with the fear that it was about to, because of Stella McCartney and Stella Tennant, it was about to blow up, explode and like, like fly up the charts. And then all of a sudden your kid goes to school with six or seven other Stellas. And every time someone says the first name of one kid in the class, half the class, all the girls in the class turn their head. And there's just something about... I mean, slang isn't just slang. Slang is, it's more about timing the curve than it has to do with the intrinsic value of words because maybe they don't have intrinsic value. I mean, it's really sort of about who's using it when, the same way fashion is about who's wearing what when. And if you if you fuck up your placement on the curve, you look like, you know, you're firmly rooted in 2009. And if you get it just right, you know, you're in 2014 looking ahead, leaving everyone in your dust. I think that's right, Steve. And I also think, I mean, Dana's right. If you look at the response to this, the descriptivists seem to have won the Internet. I think winning the Internet is another thing that you are not allowed to say on Gawker anymore. But I'm going to say it here on this podcast. (laughs) You know, 10, 20 years ago, it seemed like there were more grammar snobs out there in the world policing our language. And I think people now are more generally embracing the notion that it's going to evolve and change. And the distinction that Dana made that it's fine for LOL and derp to exist, but that maybe they don't need to appear repeatedly in the same publication is the key one. I also want to give credit to a great piece in the New York Times about words that various editors banned, which is where I pulled those tidbits from the beginning of the segment. It's written by Anna Holmes uh, in 2001. Uh, Allure at that time banned Bad Hair Day. 
in Gourmet, Ruth Reichel at the time said that you could never describe pie crust as crispy, also hated foods being described as either yummy, sinful, and divine. See, when you get down to that, to the adjectives that Ruth Reichel banned from gourmet, I think you see that, to me, the essence of what's going on here, which doesn't have to do with prescribing certain words, that's kind of the on the ground version of being a good editor, right? I mean, you're not able to just say in a blanket way, don't use empty language, don't use adjectives that mean nothing and that everybody uses about food. And so you just take certain adjectives and, and shoot them down. It's not the most sophisticated form of editing, but it gets some some basic part of the job done. Anyway, I, I support the journalism of Gawker. I support Max Reed's memo. I support the freedom of slate writers to write with smarts and interestingness, using whatever words they like, except for the profanity banned by David Plotz. Mm. Fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thankfully the uh, profanity ban does not extend to the podcast, although I happen to know Plotz disapproves of my of my lingo on this. Well, I know when you listen to the political gabfest, you're way less often likely to get that Andy Bowers pre-warning, right, about the uh, the explicit language. But with us, practically every week. There's such goo-goos over there. All right. Well, no one can ever say that of us. Is it time to endorse? I think it is time to endorse. Dana, what do you have? All right. Well, since you guys haven't seen Jonathan Glazer's second movie, Birth, the guy has only made three movies. All right. Jonathan Glazer, the, the director of Under the Skin, has made Sexy Beast, which is this kind of heist thriller with Ben Kingsley and Ray Winstone. Uh, Birth, which is this really strange romantic sci-fi drama with Nicole Kidman as a woman who's dead husband may or may not have come back to life as a 10-year-old boy. And now he's made this weird uh, sci-fi Scarlett Johansson as an alien under the skin. So Birth, his second movie, I'm not as huge a fan of as some people. It has a cult of, of adorers, of which I'm not one, but I do really admire lots of things about it, especially the music. Jonathan Glazer has a, a great sense of music. The composer for Under the Skin is named Micah Levy. I didn't know him before, but it's this you know kind of great electronic, almost modern classical score. The score for Birth is written by Alexandre Desplat, who's one of my favorite living film composers and who I've written tributes to before on Slate who I'm always rooting for to win an Oscar because he's a tall, handsome Frenchman who writes perfect film scores. <laughs> and he wrote this the score for Birth. So what I'm endorsing is the first four and a half minutes of the movie Birth. It's like the, the prologue to the movie in which you hear this beautiful Alexandre Desplat theme and you see a man jogging in Central Park. And that's pretty much all that happens, but it's a really great example of use of music to create a mood and also just Glazer's eye, his way of making gorgeous compositions on screen. So you can find it on YouTube. We'll put a link to it on our show page. It's the first four and a half minutes of the 2004 movie Birth by Jonathan Glazer. Cool. Julia, what do you have? I saw Chinatown this weekend. Amazingly, I had never seen Chinatown before. Obviously, the Roman Polanski movie starring. What? I have so many holes in my cinematic backstory. <laughs> we need to start a whole separate culture gabfest bucket list around films just for me. Um, but I'm I'm chipping away at my list one by one. And so I finally saw Chinatown, which is the Roman Polanski movie starring Jack Nicholson that I think came out in 1973. And it's as good a movie as everyone always says it is. All I really knew about it is that it involved water rights. And at the end, someone said, forget about it, Jake, it's Chinatown. But when you get to what it is that happens in Chinatown that causes a man to say that to Jack Nicholson, you are moved beyond measure. But the movie also got me thinking about the funny particulars of period costume design and what it's like to watch a movie from the past that's set further in the past. Because inevitably... Um, when you're seeing the movie set in the 1930s and you're seeing these gorgeous costumes of the 1930s, but they are the 30s as interpreted through a lens of what people will find attractive in the 70s. And I often find when you're watching a movie that's a few decades old set a few more decades in the past, it can be a little bit disorienting, right? It can be like I had trouble placing where the movie was in history until a few scenes in when it became clear that it was set 
in the 1930s. Um, Jack Nicholson is wearing a suit with super wide lapels that looks kind of 70s-ish, and then it turns out to be sort of a 30s-ish wide lapeled suit. But it made me think that costume design is this very funny art because it's ephemeral, right? Like it's drawing so finely on all of our cultural signifiers with what it means to wear a particular item of clothing in a particular time. It makes me wonder if it's the art that endures the least in cinema, that that obviously movies that have great costume design from the past still work and Chinatown still works, but it's a little bit harder to read all the signals of those clothes and what they're doing in that movie than it would have been at the time. It's beautiful. It's an amazing, amazing performance from Jack Nicholson. If, like me, you are a moron who has not yet seen Chinatown, remedy it. It's streaming on Netflix. Go watch it. I'm going to break form a little bit, and I'm going to endorse the book authored by our guest, Paul Berman. It's called Tale of Two Utopias. I've read it several times and taught it a couple of times. It is a nonfiction, I'll say the word, masterpiece. It's truly a great book. It's about the generation of 1968 with the twist that it's about the two utopias, both the first utopia that they tried to pioneer as student rebels in 68, and the second one they tried to pioneer, especially Václav Havel in Czechoslovakia, as either neoliberals or just liberated ex-communists in the Eastern Bloc. And in between, there's a uh, unbelievable chapter about Stonewall. Uh, It's probably the best thing I've ever read about Stonewall. It's just a miraculous book, and it deserves to be more widely read. So highly recommended. Tale of Two Utopias by Paul Berman. All right. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Anna Schechtman. And the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you. We'll see you next week. <laughs>